0: Hello and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman,
1: And I'm Valerie Hoagland. And, um, you know, Glenn, sometimes in our friendship, we exchange odd and poetry, including the line, come when you can, your room will be ready to indicate that we can visit each other whenever we like. I'm going to change that. To there's room for one more, honey.
0: Oh no. <laughs> well, uh, I guess we've seen each other for the last time. I mean, we can keep doing this over the internet. But <laughs> I'm never
1: gonna text you to come. I'm never just gonna be like come over. It's gonna. It's just only gonna say there's room for one more, honey. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So that is the uh, the all-important tagline for the episode that we are covering today, which is the episode 22. It is a Twilight Zone episode, an original-run Twilight Zone episode. Uh, it's from season two. It's the 17th episode. It aired on the 10th of February in 1961.
1: It was written by none other than Rod Serling and directed by Jack Smite.
0: And this came in second on our Patreon poll, so it's the last episode that we're doing from that vote. We'll start with a a new list of episodes next month. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. (laughs) This tagline is real creepy, but we'll get to that in the, the scene by scene. But yeah, it's been hard to get that out of my head this week.
1: Yeah, that one line is actually creepier than I think the whole rest of the episode. Like, you could just say it alone with no context, and it's weird, as as I just did.
0: Yeah, yes, you've demonstrated quite well. So basically, we don't even need to do an episode at this point. I think we just nailed it. <laughs> well, let's get right into this one. We open with a woman sleeping in a hospital bed. There's a clock. It's ticking loudly. The woman is moaning and she's got a doll in her hands. There's also a real creepy stuffed tiger there, but she wakes up and reaches for a glass of water and drops it on the floor and it shatters. She hears footsteps walking away from her room. She follows and she's not wearing a hospital gown. She's just wearing a dress and she's sweating. And in the hallway, she sees a nurse take the elevator down to the basement. So she waits for the next elevator and follows her. In the basement, of course, right? There's the morgue, and it's room twenty two, which is the name of this episode. And the nurse comes back out of the morgue and she says, in an echoey voice, "You have guessed it at this point, right? But this is where she says, "Room for one more, honey." And the woman we've opened with, she screams, she runs, and then we get Rod Serling's voice explaining to us that this is Liz Powell, a professional dancer who was in the hospital because of overwork and nervous fatigue. What we've just seen, is a dream, but is it really? And I got to say, Valerie, I found this teaser super disturbing. I think a big part of it was that it went on too long. I don't mean like the whole thing, but each particular shot, right? We waited for that elevator for just a few seconds too long. And then we lingered in that hallway for just a few seconds too long. And the whole thing made me really, really anxious. So by the time we get to that creepy tagline, I was way on edge already. This was extraordinarily well done, at least for, you know, making me feel uncomfortable.
1: (laughs) Yeah. uh, You know, I didn't need this episode to work me into a state of anxiety and fatigue. I was already there. Um, But they sure did do a good job. And I read that this was actually uh, a continuous shot.
0: Oh, I, I hadn't realized that, though. Very clearly, yeah, that makes sense. And it, it does feel that way. So it makes us really, I guess, feel like we're really in that moment by the fact that it is taking too long and it's not cutting, which is maybe perhaps part of why it feels like it's taking so long. But yeah, just filled me with unease, really maybe even dread. And that is maybe the the emotion, the feeling, the sensation that the Twilight zoneness of this episode hinges on, though, as we're going to see, there are some other things going on here in terms of the, the social conflict. Commentary part of what this episode is doing
1: from the get go. You you commented on the fact that she was wearing a dress and not a hospital gown. I was thinking a lot. um, I was thinking a lot about her throughout this episode uh, as she is the star. And I was thinking a lot about um, the aesthetic um, and how she's presented to us and how the other characters treat her and I was also trying to figure out what she was wearing. I think it might actually be a nightgown. At first, I thought it was like a formal dress, like something that you would wear to like a gala. But then I remembered that, you know, around this time, I feel like my grandma would have had a nightgown that was like that beautiful or something. Um, So I think it's supposed to be part of uh, the way in which, I mean, this character is is sexualized. This character is sexualized by the other characters in the story. And I think right off the bat, we get her in this kind of bombshell, sexy nightgown rather than a hospital gown. And we also get her as is still commonplace today in the hospital, in full makeup with her hair completely done in the middle of the night, (laughs) right? um, which is like, I could do with less of that expectation (laughs) um, and presentation. Um, But and I think this is also part of uh, this actress's appeal was often like cast in in roles like this um, as kind of the the quote unquote busty bombshell, um, which is part of the aesthetic that she's playing here. But, you know, how uh, how women are treated in the 60s is, I think, a big theme of this episode for me. And to see that right off the bat with with what she's wearing and how she's styled, even when she's in extreme distress and in the hospital stood out to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, my first thought upon seeing this was that must be extremely cold. But then I think it really matters that we zoom in and actually see that she's sweating. But yeah, the whole idea here, right, is that from the start, we can sense, even before we realize this is a dream, we can sense that something is wrong. And I think once we get a better sense of what that actually is, or better idea of what that is, it will be interesting to think about what actually is going on from her perspective in the dream of like why in her dream she's wearing that, why she looks this way in her dream. I have some ideas about that, but I actually want to run them by you. But I want to get like the fuller picture of what's going on here before we do that. So let's come back from the the teaser, come back from the commercial break. And we're back in the waking world at this point. We are back in Liz's hospital room. It's actually time now to meet two of the creepiest men not just who have ever been on TV, but I think who have ever existed in any capacity at all. The The first of them is Liz's agent, uh, Barney Kavanagh, and he has not visited her. He's not even called, though she's clearly been in the hospital for a while. He keeps calling her kitten, and he refers to her as a stripper, even though she prefers to be called a dancer. He's also not taking her seriously when she says that she has dreams that come true. Uh, we don't ever find out. My sense here, though, is that He's actually the reason that she's in the hospital in the first place. But at any rate, he's not a nice person. Her agent is not a nice person or a good person for that matter.
1: From the moment that this character walks onto the screen, I mean, when you even started talking about him, I heard in my head him calling her kitten and got like deeply uncomfortable. He ends every sentence with kitten, but but his sentences are all very dismissive. For, for the first thing, both this character and the doctor that we're about to meet, the very first thing that they say and the thing they emphasize repeatedly about um, our main character here is that she looks beautiful, right? Her well-being and uh, her mental health and her physical health, which she keeps talking about, are irrelevant because she looks beautiful to them and they ignore everything else that she says. And this starts here with the agent where the character is saying, hey, you you haven't called, you haven't been around, I'm kind of unhappy here. Like, this this has been really rough. And he just repeatedly dismisses her ending every sentence with kitten. And um, it's, not, it's not fun to watch.
0: Kitten is a really great word. It's like the perfect word choice for this from a writer's perspective, right, where you're trying to characterize this agent, because kitten is to both Dehumanize and also infantilize her, right? You're not a person, you're a cat, but also you're not actually a cat, you're a baby cat. And also sometimes we use that term to sexualize women to make them just an object. You're that too. Right? It's all three of those things at once. It's creepy, it's terrible, but it is also the perfect word choice. So this is some really great writing from Rod Serling here.
1: There's just continued disregard for her well being that is, yeah, predicated on um, her. Her sexual appeal, her womanhood, um, and that the character of the agent seems to leverage as being further permissible to speak to and treat her this way um, because, you know, the implication here is that she is a sex worker, which feeds into a problem that we've had for a very long time and that we continue to do of dehumanizing um, sex workers, right? Um, And which leads directly to violence against women, violence against sex workers. Um, and it's just, we're, we're not done with these problems yet. And I think I have a little bit more to say about that, but I'll wait until the doctor shows up. So you're right, it's very effective um, at, at showing what is wrong here. But Glenn, I also wonder what you think if this was meant as social commentary, if we're meant to not like the agent, or if we're just actually seeing a scene that would have really genuinely played out in the 60s.
0: I think we are 100% meant to not like this agent. In fact, I think we're meant to really hate this agent. It's it's clear. One One thing that we've not maybe emphasized here so far is that it's clear that Liz is really good at her work, that she is someone who's highly regarded as a, as a dancer. Her career is to travel around from, uh, like club to club and perform, uh, the same way that like singers would do, right. That she's, she's playing the casino circuit. So she travels around. She's highly sought after, right. Entertainment venues are around the country want to book her, and her agent then, right, his living, he makes his living taking a percentage of the pay that she gets because his job is to make those appointments for her, manage her schedule, get the airplane tickets, make the living arrangements, and, and so on, right? Do all of that work. So his success, his material well-being is totally dependent on her, yet immediately here, he acts like he's the boss of her rather than the other way around. And just thinking about this from the perspective of even Rod Serling, who's writing this, maybe even setting aside any of the uh, misogyny that's happening here in this scene. Rod Serling probably is just someone who doesn't like agents very much as the producer of this show, as seeing agents actually as these these middlemen who muck up the process of booking actors and other types of talent for the show and make it more expensive and harder for him to actually like produce the show that he wants. So I think there's a dig even just at sort of the role that agents play here as well. So I definitely think just on, on both of those fronts that we're not supposed to like this guy.
1: You know, that makes me feel a little bit better that it is intentional that we do not like this person. It also helps fill out, you know, how it is that she came to anxiety and um and excessive fatigue, right? It's because this this agent is directly not taking her well-being into consideration and overbooking her on things, disregarded her completely when she was of no um, financial use to him. And now that she like is maybe around the time of getting better, he shows up so that he can continue to make money off of her. And, you know, the actress that plays Liz, um, Barbara Nichols, um, was I think a showgirl in her early career, um, was was offered, um, I think, sex work and turned it down to pursue acting. So it I would love to talk to Barbara and, uh, and sit down and know what it was like to to play something that she lived through, um, and and what her perspective was on on how she was being treated and and what that was illuminating for for her real lived experience.
0: That's real interesting, and she's she's perfect in this role. And 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 something that I have not brought up yet either is that she really doesn't just take Kavanagh's nonsense here. She doesn't just put up with him. She tells him that she's disappointed in him she's angry at him she doesn't like him very much that she's onto him she realizes that he's not treating her well uh, that he's not treating her like a person and that he does not have her best interest in 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 mind and that's something that's gonna show up throughout the entire episode and is going to happen when we do actually get this other male character who's about to, to come in the second man that we meet and that is her doctor and the first thing uh, you know you brought this up abstractly Valerie but the first thing that he says here is that Liz makes him wish he were a young intern again. Uh, and then he lets out the creepiest murder clown laugh that there has ever been. Uh, I mean, it hasn't actually happened yet, but he's bound to show up in at least one of my own nightmares someday. I mean, that's going to happen like any minute now. He is terrifying.
1: Yeah, his his first comment Is not how are you doing? It's hey, you look great. I wish I were younger, so it would be socially permissible for me to act on my desires towards you. This is her doctor.
0: Yeah, it's real terrible, and she acknowledges that it's terrible. Right? That's I think something that really matters here. Right? Is that she calls him out for doing this, and in fact, actually, her calling him out on on this precipitates. The doctor and the agent; they're he's still in the room here. When the doctor comes in, to exchange glances with each other, uh, a s sort of as if they're communicating to each other about you know how they both have to put up with this uppity woman here. And it's also very clear in this moment, right, that the agent's interest here is really in talking to the doctor because he wants to find out when Liz can be discharged so that he can send her back to work so that he can continue to get commissions.
1: Right, and. Uh, That was a detail that I noticed as well, where the doctor says he has like an update on her condition and the agent says, "Okay, I'll leave. Then the doctor, without consulting her, says, no, no, it's fine. You can stay. That is a HIPAA violation. (laughs) That is like illegal. We need her consent to do that because he's about to speak about sensitive medical information. But of course, he gets the consent from her agent and from himself and what he's decided is okay rather than from her. And you're right. It's like there are two different scenes playing simultaneously. The The narrative that the, the men are pretending is happening and the words the woman is actually saying. She is standing up for herself and saying what she needs and what she's worried about and what's wrong in every instance, even pointing out negative things about their behavior. But they just like literally do not Listen, it's as if she has said nothing by the way they respond.
0: Yeah, until the very end of this scene when the the agent really does leave and she says she expresses her uh, displeasure in, in him at that moment. And he acts like she's being kind of awful and saying these things to him and maybe a little bit out of her mind. And again, he and the doctor share a meaningful glance at that moment. And then and then he leaves. Yeah, I think smugly sure that he's awesome, has done no wrong and that the problem is her.
1: I mentioned that in some ways this was hard to watch and you know taking the the lens that it is social commentary which Twilight Zone um often is and does such a good job with it that makes this a very important episode for the reasons I'm about to list but it was also really hard to to watch on a on a personal and kind of more macro level as well I I mean I know my my grandmother has told me stories about her horrific experiences in the hospital. Um, stories about she had several miscarriages. She had a few stillbirths. Um, she was left alone. She was dismissed. Her pain was actively dismissed by doctors over and over. They're they're really horrible stories, and we have a a lot of research to back this up that says that even today, women. Their pain is taken less seriously and and estimated to be less than reported compared to men um, by doctors. Women wait longer uh, in ERs when experiencing more severe pain. They are less likely to be prescribed appropriate pain medication than men. These things happen all the time and. Those those statistics, the likelihood of longer ER visits, not getting the medicine you need, having your pain ignored, increases when you stack on um, other social factors. When you stack on race, um, when you stack on size, um, this this happens. Um, medical fat phobia, medical racism, medical sexism is something that is still very much present today and has real serious consequences. Not. To mention that it's hard to watch this episode without a context of the history of hysteria in mind. From the second that we are told that this woman is in the hospital for anxiety and excessive fatigue, it made me think about the way doctors treated women with hysteria historically. Um, so it was just all very much emotionally on my mind um, as I watched this episode.
0: Yeah, I was really attuned to the fact that the word hysteria is not actually used in this episode even though it it's it's right there in the background, right? It's it's on the tip of everyone's tongue in this episode, but they never actually use it. And I I wondered about the history of hysteria as an actual medical diagnosis, and I have no idea, you you almost certainly know better than I do, Valerie, if that was still sort of on the books as a, as a legitimate medical diagnosis in the the late 50s and early 60s.
1: It was very much still prevalent. And in fact, it wasn't until nineteen eighty that hysteria was removed from the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the the book, the the Western Medical book that psychologists and psychiatrists use to diagnose people with um with mental health concerns. So, yeah, still very much a thing.
0: Wow. Uh, wow. Okay. I'm surprised to hear it existed that late. And maybe we should even just clarify what we actually even mean by hysteria. And I say that because I, I think growing up in the 80s, when I would hear the word hysteria or really the adjective hysterical, it described uh, something being extremely funny. And so it was not until I was much older that I discovered that, of course, one, originally it. Meant you, what you meant was this person is crazy, but then also that it was something that could only apply to women, that it's rooted in the Greek word for womb. And what it means is this person is mentally ill, this woman is mentally ill because something is wrong with her womb. So it's an extremely pointed term, though it it certainly became diluted uh, at some point in our own pop culture. But that was why I was surprised to not hear it stated in this episode because it seemed like it's it's obviously something that Rod Serling is thinking about is this this just this medical idea that women ha- are susceptible to a certain type of of mental affliction that men just aren't because they have wombs
1: I like this episode a lot. It's it, and it seems like a really simple episode um, where we get this fun horror story, and we'll talk about that soon. We promise. <laughs> um, and you know, not much happens. We just see the same scene, you know, a couple times over. But I guess what I'm saying is, there's just like such a historical emotional component to to watching this. There's just so much more subtext here. Watching it as as a woman aware of these things.
0: Yeah. So as as you've promised, Valerie, we should talk about the horror element of this episode as well. But it is the same premise, right? It's not just that the way these two men are treating Liz Powell is the social commentary of this episode. Obviously, it is. It is also actually the horror plot of this episode or the, the, the horror hook of this episode, right? The what's, what's going on here is the question of whether or not Liz's dream is a premonition, as she believes. Uh, and it also seems like she's had other dreams that have come true. We don't get any details about that. But the question is really whether or not these dreams are actually coming true. And obviously, no one believes her. Not her agent, not her doctor. The doctor brings in the night nurse at this point to show Liz that the night nurse is not actually the nurse that she sees in her dream and therefore it cannot be true. Uh, I say brings in here, but really this nurse has actually been hiding behind a curtain for like five (laughs) minutes. And you know, that's fine. Everything is fine here. (laughs) Totally creepy. Oh, you're so right. (laughs) So the doctor really wants Liz here to to take some agency in her dream, to do something to alter it. The dream always starts with her reaching for a glass of water and then dropping that glass on the floor. And so he suggests that, hey, just don't reach for the glass. Just make this small change and uh, see that it's not real and that you're in charge of it. And of course, when she starts to dream again, she does that. Uh, She lights a cigarette instead of reaching for the glass, because you could still do that in hospitals, I guess, in 1961. But the glass shatters on the floor anyway. And then the footsteps again, and the whole dream repeats. Liz screams, uh, and she whimpers. This is here in the real world now. And the, the doctor and the nurse are sedating her. But then the doctor is looking over some paperwork, and it occurs to him that Liz knows what room number the morgue is. It's 22. That's real but how can she know that? And so the doctor maybe is starting to wonder. And we know, right, this is going to have a, a, a twist of some sort. But at this point, Valerie, at the end of the second act is really where we are right now in, the, in terms of the the pacing of the story. What were you expecting was going to happen in this episode?
1: Well, I was certainly hoping that the doctor discovering this fact might mean that he takes what's going on with her a little bit more seriously. But he seems to realize this fact and then do nothing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. This is totally a red herring. As you you know, we go to commercial at this point, And yeah, we definitely think we're going to come back and like the doctor's going to turn into some kind of, you know, a cult detective uh, and and solve the, the case, figure out what's actually going on here. Um, does not we, we we come back and it turns out that the hospital part of this story is just totally over. Liz is packing her bag. She's being discharged. The doctor's there to be creepy one more time, you know, just in case we'd forgotten how terrifyingly creepy he is. I'm never going going to forget, but you know, just in case. And then Barney, right, her agent is waiting for her downstairs. Liz seems totally demoralized by that fact. In fact, she asks the nurse if there's another way out of the hospital and maybe she's joking, but probably she's not actually. And then when she gets to the airport to fly to Miami for her next job, there is a man in line who is just hovering over her, uh, who then, when she confronts him, he he apologizes for doing that, but apologizes with a lie, right? He says he didn't mean to stare at her, but he so obviously knew what he was actually doing. And that is the last beat that we're going to get on that before we finish the episode with the revelation about the dream. So I do want to say that I think that this episode has done a really remarkable job of making me feel extremely uncomfortable. It made me feel like I am Liz in this story in a really visceral way.
1: I think part of that is, is how, how we function as audience members in this show, right? When we think about the ways that um, the doctor and the agent are, are completely dismissing what she says, it's as if they do not hear her at all. We do hear her right? Like, it's like, we're the only ones in the room that that hear what she is saying. And we're the only ones in the room that see what she is seeing. So it's really easy and effective at helping us, you know, embody that character, because it's like, we're the only ones there with her. And we are starting to feel really agitated, because, you know, nobody is listening to Liz. And we're seeing that this this dream is really happening. Um, I also think, I didn't know where the episode was going, and I definitely thought with each iteration of the dream something new and even scarier would happen. Um, So the fact that the dream actually quite literally just repeats itself, scene for scene, every time built up the anticipation because I kept thinking someone would some because I kept thinking something would change and it didn't. So where's the hook?
0: Right. Well, we're going to get that now. So Liz has her ticket for flight 22 nonstop to Miami. Wait, which flight did you say? Yeah. 22. Same as the morgue, same as the title of the episode, but don't worry. It's fine. And you can board now right over there. And then there's a clock. And then Liz bumps into a woman who drops a vase that shatters on the floor. And Liz is terrified as she climbs the steps up to the the plane. It's, you know, this is still those days of air travel where you actually walk outside onto the terminal or onto onto the tarmac and climb up some steps. So she's terrified as she's walking up the steps to the plane. The danger music here is dialed up to at least nine as well. It's really intense. But at the top of the steps, she's greeted by the flight attendant. And of course, it's the nurse from her dream. Room for one more, honey. And Liz screams and runs away and just runs straight back into the terminal, really just screaming the whole way. And Liz tells herself that this is not a dream. It couldn't be. She's awake. She knows it. And then she watches the plane take off and also watches the plane explode. And that's the episode.
1: There is some really cool stuff happening in this episode with sound and camera angle and editing and pacing, as you as you pointed out earlier, if if I may be incredibly pretentious on air, it's giving me like neorealism vibes, (laughs) Um, the way (laughs) that, um, you know, we linger a little bit too long on kind of, quote unquote, boring scenes where nothing happens. And then the way where, you know, when we are uh, zooming back into her, she's gone back into the the airport, she's run away after the flight, um, after the flight attendant has said room for one more, honey, we're outside, we're like on the tarmac and looking in and we can hear that she's very distraught um, and explaining to some people around her what's going on and explaining her distress, but we don't actually hear the sound of that. And it's, it, it's almost as if that makes her distress louder in a way that we don't get its sound.
0: The, the entire way that this business with getting onto the plane and then running away from the plane is shot is actually really cool. And I, I don't really know anything about, well, I don't know anything about the technique of making any kind of film or television, but I certainly know less about it for, the, for 1961 than I, I know about how it's done now. Uh, though I will say that this was shot on videotape and not film. That's one of the interesting things about this episode is a weird experiment the Twilight Zone was uh, playing around with for a very brief period of time here. But the shot really include the shots fairly wide and that it includes uh, is that it's not just zoomed on her as she's walking to the plane or or running back into the terminal. And so we see a lot of activity behind her and we see the building and the kind of busyness of the of the airport, which in some ways, I think, simultaneously minimizes her. Right. It, It lets us know that she's just one person among many here. But then also, I think, accentuates how alone she actually is. In, in this moment with the dramatic realization that something is, is wrong and in her terror. And it's really expertly done. I, I thought this episode just worked so well that it really affected me. So there were a lot of things that I thought were really cool about this episode that I had to go look into. One of them actually was the music. My interest in the music was that it seemed like there was a good chance that this had been composed by Jerry Goldsmith, who uh, matters for Star Trek an awful lot, right? Did the score for Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, perhaps all of, or at least most of the Next Generation films. And then for, for my money, most importantly, the theme to Voyager. But he also, in his early days, was worked as a TV composer. He was one of the in-house composers for CBS, and he did a ton of Twilight Zone. It turns out he didn't do this music. And in fact, no one did this music intentionally. They actually just recycled music they had for other episodes and kind of mashed it all up here, which was a, you know, a cost cutting uh, device, which also was what they were doing with the video instead of the film as well. So they were really trying to make this episode on the cheap. It's also maybe why they recycled the same scene three times in this episode as well, though. Great episode for having taken those cost-cutting devices. But one of the things that I discovered in in reading about this episode is that it is actually an adaptation of uh, a ghost story by... Uh, by the really famous late 19th and early 20th century ghost story writer E.F. Benson, who is someone who's totally in the wheelhouse for Elder Sign, a weird fiction show that Brandon and I do together on the network. Well, we have not done a single Benson story yet, but I'm going to try to find a way to work this in sometime this year to actually do the short story that inspired this. Uh, it's not an airplane <laughs> in in that story, and it's actually also not a woman. In fact, I think this episode is better than the Benson story is uh, my, my feeling there. And and that story is called The Bus Conductor, right? So you can infer, hey, it's about a a bus. And it is essentially the same exact plot here, though it has virtually no social commentary. And I don't think it's full of nearly as much dread, but it does have this gimmick of this scary one line that shows up in the dream and then also shows up when the the person, the man having the dream, uh, who's been having the dream when he encounters the boss in real life, then gets the line. And that line is just room for one inside, sir. Uh, so I think the line here actually is also better than that. <laughs> it, it, it certainly resonates with me more than, uh, than the original Benson line as well. Uh, but I was really interested in that as an, as an adaptation.
1: I think the alteration to the line makes it fit so seamlessly into the story and the time period, right? The way that we get all those sentences from the agent from Barney ended with kitten, right? The way people kind of speak to women at this time and that the line is rewritten with honey at the end. Room for one more honey.
0: And really this character who, you know, we first encounter as a nurse, but then turns out really to be a flight attendant could also just be working in a diner, right? I mean, that's, it just, just says the word honey just expertly. It's, uh, it's fantastic. I think all of the acting actually in this episode was really quite good.
1: Definitely. There was nothing about any of the performances that pulled me out from the characters. In fact, everybody played their role so well that I got to fully inhabit this, this little, um, the story, this little universe. And that's pretty impressive because there's only three characters and none of them really talk that much.
0: (laughs) I don't watch a whole lot of the original Twilight Zone, but every time I do, I'm reminded of just what an awesome show it was. And in fact, I've not watched uh, an episode of the original Twilight Zone for I mean, just years and years since you and I did the episode. Also from the second season, "Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up?" is one of our Patreon episodes a long time ago. But, but doing this episode here today has made me want to do more of these. So I hope we'll have time and, and space to do that. Uh, do that in the future, though. I will. Uh, I will say that the uh, the next non Trek uh, episode that's going to appear on a ballot, which will be in a, a few months, is uh, is going to be from the show Sliders, which is uh, <laughs> uh, something we've <laughs> talked about doing for a hard, long time. Hard left but, turn. Yeah, very different from the Twilight Zone. But I'm uh, hoping, you know, if that makes it in the in the voting, it's totally up to our Patreon supporters. If it does, that'll be, uh, be real fun to do. But, but we should probably make a cocktail for this episode. What do you think? Yeah, I'm going to need one. Yeah, this being, you know, 1961, I was actually a little surprised that people were not rushing to, uh, to just bring Liz Powell a martini when they realize she's distraught, right? That seems to be, I don't know, at least from, from having watched Mad Men, uh, my impression is that that was the cure-all.
1: Not to mention that in the unaired, but now very widely available on Netflix, um, pilot to the original series, which has neither Bones nor Kirk in it, our doctor character, never to be seen again, does offer Captain Pike a martini to help him with his
0: troubles. Right. It's a, it's an actual prescription. And he's he's just carrying around like a little cocktail kit, like literally a little cocktail kit, as if it's a medicine bag, which is just, uh, I don't know, that's my dream. <laughs>
1: All right. So the cocktail that I came up with, um, you know, I haven't taste tested it yet. So, it might be more thematically um, tied up in a nice little bow rather than flavor-wise, but I do have all the ingredients, so I will be making it and can field questions about it moving <laughs> forward. Um, but this cocktail is based on one that I found called Urban Anxiety. Um, oh, wow. I wanted to take my cue from, from the opening and closing narrations here, um, where in the beginning we are told that she is in the hospital as a result of overwork and nervous fatigue. But at the end, we are told that her diagnosis is acute anxiety brought on by overwork and fatigue. So rather than urban anxiety, I will be calling this cocktail acute anxiety. um, And you can add... uh, colon brought on by overwork and fatigue, if you like, um, (laughs) while you're drinking it. Um, But the original cocktail of the Urban Anxiety Cocktail calls um, for cachaca, which is a Brazilian spirit, um, as well as sweet vermouth, chinar, angostura bitters, and grapefruit. So I've changed a few of those things up here to better suit our episode. So the first thing I'm keeping the cachaca. It's a very um, unique spirit. If you've never had it, it kind of sometimes I mean, you can get a lower quality where it just really tastes like alcohol. But some of the um, pricier options have really lovely kind of banana notes to them. Almost. Have you had cachaca, Glenn?
0: I I have. And banana is exactly right. It's a really, really uh, beautiful liqueur. I I did make the mistake once of of calling it to a Brazilian friend of mine, Brazilian rum. Um, That is not the right way to, that's not the right thing to call it.
1: I dated someone from Brazil for a while. So I stocked my bar with this bottle and was told that this was a way nicer bottle of cachaça than any cachaça they had <laughs> ever had in Brazil. And it did not hit the nostalgia notes because that was, it was not like a fancy cachaça <laughs> that they were drinking. Um, but I'm going to keep the cachaça and the sweet vermouth. So those are in equal parts one part cacha- cachaça, one part sweet vermouth. And I'm going to swap out the Cinar for an Amaro, a different Italian Amaro that has honey in it. And here there are two choices that you could go with. Um, they're both from the Varnelli um, distillery, um, which is in um, Le Marche in Italy. And you can either pick Amaro Sibilla here or Amaro del Erborista here. Um, and both of those have honey in them as a sweetener. But, you know, a lot of different um. Um, Amari, aperitifs, digestifs, things from France and Italy and um, elsewhere in Europe have honey as sweeteners. Honey is a very common sweetener and many of these kind of more, more bitter secondary ingredients. So if you have something else, go ahead and pick that. That's going to be three quarters of a part of whatever it is that you choose there. Um, we're going to replace the Angostura bitters with a dash of lavender bitters because Liz is just a beautiful woman and I want to pay on to that with maybe a little scent of her perfume and we're going to swap the grapefruit out for lemon because I just love lemon and honey together.
0: Yeah, and, and with lavender, too. Yeah, that's a suddenly became a beautiful floral drink, right? I, I was thinking that you were going somewhere tropical with this, uh, and certainly there will still be some of that with the banana. But yeah, you went in a real floral direction there. Uh, this sounds delicious. I know you said you hadn't actually tried it yet, but I, I think I, I'm optimistic about the results. Uh, I'm hopeful for the results because I want this to taste good because then I want you to make me one.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I, I plan on having some acute anxiety later tonight, um, <laughs> and so I'll uh, both... <laughs> both literally and in drink form. Uh, so I'll let you know.
0: Yeah, that is all of us every night, I think, here during the pandemic. But on that note, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And
1: I'm Valerie Hoagland.
0: I really thought this was a fantastic episode, and I would love to hear what our regular Star Trek fan audience thinks about this Twilight Zone episode. So I hope that you'll drop by our forum at ClayTempleMedia.com or our subreddit, which is also just called Media, and let us know what you thought of this episode. Or if you've read that EF Benson ghost story as well, uh, that would be a lot of fun to, to talk about. If you are interested in hearing Valerie and I talk about other Twilight Zone episodes, or at least one other Twilight Zone episode, as I said, we have done Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up on Patreon, which was a fantastic episode. Lots of other bonus episodes. I mean, like literally close to 100 bonus episodes on Patreon at this point. So uh, lots for you there if you decide to join us. And we would love it if you did. Next month, we are going to be back with a real classic, uh, an episode that was nominated by one of our Patreon supporters and something I am super, 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 super excited about Valerie! It's Darmak from the Next Generation. I cannot wait for this.
1: I know, and I cannot believe we are recording on location at Tanagra.
0: <laughs> when the walls fell. That's. <laughs>
1: Um, and I'm super excited to talk about the wonderful memes that have come out of Dharmakuk in the in the last uh, six months or so. Yeah, it's gonna be so fun to talk about that. and uh, especially with um, our background in reading a lot of epic poetry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, we'll try to contain ourselves, but no promises.
1: Oh, absolutely no promises. I don't know if I'm even gonna try. <laughs> but until then, stay spacey.